Hello everyone, I'm Drew. I'm Lazy. And we're sarcastic, <laughs> so let's get sinister. We should have had a stand-in comment for Bailey. Yeah. Bailey is absent from this recording. She's going to have to listen later, just like everybody yeah, else. Are we going to say why she's absent, or are we just going to move on? Are we going to let everybody wonder? She's just tired. <laughs> <laughs> I think exhausted was the word. Because yeah, she, she like, didn't sleep last night, but then she has to work tonight. and Yeah. She, just well, she didn't sleep well last care. night, is what she said. Yeah. But... As some of you know, Bailey works at an emergency vet office, and she's on the overnight rotation right now, so her whole schedule's messed schedule up. is, like, opposite Lacey's, yeah. who works at regular school. Hours. You say regular hours? Yeah. Just the daylight. The daylight ones. So Bailey's going to listen in. What are you going to tell us about today? Well, I'm trying to... There we go. Can you see Yeah, our presentation? So I'm going to tell you about Lori Dan and the death of Nikki Corwin. Ooh. Okay. 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 I'm so ready. <laughs> tell me. Making sure. I'm, I'm mostly going to tell you about Lori because there's not much information about Nikki, but oh. um, her chaotic life led to the death of Nikki, so. Okay, okay. Um, so I'm just going to jump right in, okay? I'm ready. Lori was born Lori Wasserman, and she was born October 18th, 1957, in mm -hmm. Michael Reese Hospital on Chicago's South Side. She was the second child of Edith Joy and Norman Wasserman. Um, Edith was 27 and Norman was 28. Norman worked as an accountant and Edith at the time, you know, stayed home with the kids. Okay. Um, the couple at the time lived with their five-year-old son, Mark, in the Pill Hill neighborhood near South Shore. Have you heard of the Pill Hill? No. Should I have? Yeah, no. Hmm? Tell me why it's called the Pill Hill. At the time, Pill Hill was so named due to the number of doctors living in the neighborhood. Oh, that's not what I expected. Right? I thought it was going to be like it was a lot of people taking some pills. Yeah. So, no. so it was more of a positive than I was anticipating. More prescribey. Yeah. Less takey. Okay. Um, hmm? Is it Okay. It had a reputation for affluence and quality residences. Mm. Well, it was mostly filled with doctors, so that makes sense. Yeah. Um, seven years later, the Wassermans packed up and moved to Highland Park. Highland Park is a suburb located about 25 miles north of Chicago. It is a very upscale community and experienced a growth spurt in the 1950s when its population doubled. 
So it seemed like the Wassermans were like working their way up the ladder. Or yeah. the social ladder? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, Norman was described as a workaholic and Edith was an unemotional mother is what they were, was what she was described as. Oh, that was probably fun for the kids then. Yep. Growing up, Lori was always showered with gifts, but the family seemed to lack outward emotional displays of affection. Lori Mm. was described by classmates as being shy and withdrawn, but also a daddy's girl. Her classmates recall that she was unremarkable and didn't seem to have any close friends. Friends. Did you say, was Laurie um, an only child, or does she have siblings? She had an older brother named Mark. Okay, thank you. He's, like, five years older than her, and that's the last I mentioned him. He, All right, so Laurie from the here on out. Yeah, he doesn't... He doesn't exist anymore. He might, but he doesn't. Um, as a teen, her parents played for an autoplasty procedure, which is the cosmetic surgery to d- reduce large ears. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. And a rhinoplasty for a nose reduction. Okay. So if you look at this picture here, this was her in sixth, sixth grade, and this was her as like an older teenager. You okay. can definitely see the difference in the nose. In the nose, yeah. Yeah. These surgeries, combined with a growth spurt, which increased her breast size, got Lori attention from the opposite sex. In 1973, while in high school, the Wassermans moved again to a home in Glencoe. Their home is described as a sprawling five-bedroom, comfortable by any measure, but modest by Glencoe standards. So it was like... You and I would think it was a mansion um, because it's five bedrooms, but compared to the other houses in the neighborhood, it was modest. In high school, Lori did not have many girlfriends, but was popular with the boys. She tried out for cheerleading and a club called the Girls Club, but did not make the cut for either. Each time she walked away angry... One classmate recalled that, quote, she always had a boyfriend and was very and was really clingy, draped around him. She seemed frightened and had a real unhealthy attachment to boys. Interesting. Like, I'm think I was thinking that, like, because she wasn't getting, like, affection from her parents, she was looking for it from some other sources. That's probably a reasonable assumption. Thank you. She didn't seem to work hard in school. She was often cheating on tests and such. But despite poor grades in high school, Lori attended Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, until she was able to get her grades up. A year later, she transferred to the University of Arizona in Tucson as a liberal liberal arts major. There, she pledged the Alpha Delta Pi sorority. She was a C student. Her main interest on campus, said one former sorority sister, was not difficult to distinguish. Quote, men. She had a lot of dates. <laughs> so she didn't go to college to get good grades. She went there to get boys. Yeah, as some do. Can you hear Charlie running around with a ball in the background? I can hear the jingle of her okay, color. Because it's loud on my end and I wasn't sure. But if it's just a little jingle for you, then I'm not going to keep muting myself. Yeah. 
I personally, I take offense when you mute yourself because I'm like, <laughs> you and I are having a conversation because Bailey's not here. Yeah. And it just feels like you're ignoring me. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll stay unmuted. I'm here. Thank you. I'm ready. So frequently she would make dates with several men for one evening, her sorority sisters said, and then cancel all but one. Quote, kind of one guy she really wanted to go out with at the last minute. So she would just so make like, sure she had a bunch lined up so she had options. And then that yeah, day she'd be like, up. I'm feeling John tonight, so I'm going to cancel everybody else. Exactly. Yeah, that feels kind of mean to me. It was theorized that she went to school not for education, but to find a wealthy husband. Her sorority sisters remembered that she complained a lot and was rarely fun to be with. It's so winner. mean. <laughs> In the fall of 1977, she changed her major to home economics, which I didn't know that was a major back then. So you could major in being a housewife back then. What? Like like that's pretty much what that is. But you know what? They probably. But I'm surprised. No, they probably learned valuable stuff. I'm sure they know how to like. I don't know what all the boomers complain about: balancing checkbooks, all the things that. We're not taxes married. maybe we had an iron shirt it doesn't sound right now like anybody really liked her i mean i know she had a lot of dates but like the people say. that you're giving like you, they don't have to necessarily like her for that but maybe they did but like all the girls i guess that are talking about her in yeah. high school and in college it seems like nobody was a big fan yeah i think that it it kind of speaks to her personality that she seemed more concerned with getting male attention than female attention yeah love yourself Lori. she also found time she would later confide to learn marksmanship in off-campus instruction oh that's interesting yeah i wonder what, i wonder what made her interested in that because she was like i don't really want to learn much i would like a husband but also i would like to shoot she wanted a husband, she wanted to learn how to be a good housewife, and she wanted to learn how to shoot. Yes. Because as a good housewife, you need to protect the home. That's fair. That's fair. Mm-hmm. I see you, Lori. So she began... <laughs> She's dead, FYI. Oh. Spoiler. Sorry, Lori. <laughs> um, she began dating a pre-med student. Things became serious, but Lori also became possessive and demanding. After dating for two years, they broke up because boyfriend was about was about to enter med school, and he didn't want Lori. <laughs> I was going to say the distraction, but I mean she was also being possessive and demanding, and he was probably yeah. like, you know what else is demanding? Med school. Med school. So, um, also, you'll note that I called him boyfriend because I don't know how, but he managed to keep his name out of like all of the news. Oh. That makes yeah. me think and this a... is well, it's impressive especially because this is not the last we hear about boyfriend oh huh. should we name him what i was gonna say should we name him and then you start to say you're gonna call him something oh yeah i'll be calling him dr boyfriend okay oh i like it okay yeah so following the breakup in 1980 she moved back in with her parents and transferred to northwestern university but she eventually dropped out and never graduated mm. That summer, she met Russell Dan at a bar. Russell Dan? Those are two first names. 
Yeah, well, I was hoping you'd catch on that his last name is the same as Lori Dan's. Oh, I didn't. I forgot her last name. <laughs> I forgot that she was born with another last name than how you introduced her as well. Yeah, right. she was originally Wasserman. And then she met Russell Dan at a bar and they started to date. Russell, who grew up in Highland Park, was a rising employee of Dan Brothers Insurance com- Company in Northbrook. In just Northbrook. I don't I'm, okay. it's <laughs> which is somewhere. It's in it's in a, where I I was I said Northbrook, like I was gonna say in Northbrook Minnesota. Yeah. But then you didn't. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. There it's Illinois. <laughs> okay. Um, so he was a rising employee in the family business. He thought uh, she was quiet but cute, but he was Lori's opposite. Russell was an all-American boy, very outgoing, well-liked, with a great number of friends. He was a champion tennis player at the Green Acres Country Club in Northbrook and an outstanding outstanding skier. Despite their differences, Lori and Russell were engaged nine months later at the Wasserman's Florida home in Boca Raton. Hmm speedy engagement they were married on september 11th 1982 in northbrook it was decided to have a small ceremony partly because russell's friends would far outnumber Lori's, so they were just like let's just keep it small otherwise it's going to be very unbalanced Lori's parents Lori's parents gifted the newlyweds a wedding get wedding present of fifteen thousand dollars nice yeah, I wish I could. In 1982. I mean, even now, not to say that, like, now I'd be like, oh, that's not any kind of money. <laughs> but yeah. then it would have been even more. So then that's them on their wedding day. I figured by the wedding dress. <laughs> yeah. And the pushing um, on of the rings. Yeah. And the groom outfit. Yeah. Just all the details. Um, so at the time, Lori was 25 and Russell was 26. Once okay. married, Lori's dream of being a housewife was made. She hmm. did not need to work. Russell was earning a six-figure salary that was only a fraction of his net worth. Nice. However, Russell's family, surprisingly, did not like Lori. They immediately began to notice signs of OCD and other strange behavior. At, for example, at stoplights, Lori would open the door and tap her foot on the pavement. That's weird. I will say that weird behavior isn't necessarily a reason to not like somebody, but I think she probably gave them reasons. Yeah, I mean, it didn't sound like she got along with many people, just in yeah. general. And then they were just like kind of like looking at her side-eyed because she like at stoplight she would open the door tap her foot on the pavement she would tiptoe around a carpet at her parents book of return home so instead of like walking across the carpet she or just tiptoe? walking around it she would tiptoe around it that's interesting Lori. She, re- she would refuse to close cabinets in the kitchen and she seemed obsessed with cleanliness wearing gloves and compulsively scrubbing her hands but at the same time, she had urine-stained carpets and greasy hair. 
She was showered with new clothes, but remembered for her sweatsuits and unkempt dress. So, like, she would have plenty of new clothing to wear because Russell, but she would only, she would, she just didn't want to wear it. Huh. That's weird. I don't know enough about OCD, but I wonder if, like, all of that is OCD stuff or if some of it was just Lori. I wonder if it was kind of paranoid behavior. Yeah. Because, well, let's keep going. Um, <laughs> yeah. Lori began to see a psychiatrist. Russell promised to spend whatever it took to make her well. But by March 1984, she began to refuse help. Mm. So. <laughs> a letter from her psychiatrist on March 12th pleaded with her to continue psychotherapy. The letter also warned Lori that she could not rely on medication to cure her problems. In 1985, Lori and Russell bought a five-bedroom house in Highland Park. But in October 1985, Lori and Russell separated. Okay. So yeah, just after their third yeah. wedding okay. anniversary. Russell's father, Armand, gave Norman Wasserman a deadline to come to a friendly divorce agreement. The day before the deadline, in January 1986, Lori filed for divorce. She told her lawyer that she was hoping to drag out the divorce proceedings for two to three years. <laughs> Why? Just Why to... Do want to? People I don't really... think Lori really wanted the divorce. Mm, so she was going to make it difficult because that was like yeah. a punishment to him. I, I think that had... Um, Russell's father not talked to Lori's dad about the deadline, then she wouldn't have filed for the divorce on her own. Um, surprisingly, the divorce was acrimonious, mainly because Lori claimed that Russell had been abusive. Police started responding to various incidents, including harassing phone calls made to Russell and his family. Lori claimed in April 18... Nope. In April 1986 that Russell had broken into and vandalized her parents' home where she was living. On May 10th, 1986, Lori purchased a Smith & Wesson uh, .357 Magnum handgun, telling the salesperson that it was for self-defense. The clerk remembered her as being flirtatious. Lori also told her parents she needed it for protection. A friend of the Dan family made sure Russell knew his estranged wife was now armed. Mm. I feel like that and says Russell something told, that a friend would be concerned enough about her getting a gun to feel like they needed to warn somebody. Yeah. Because you could find out that somebody bought a gun and not be like, oh no, I need to go tell their ex. Right. You know? Like if you and Brandon broke up and you went out and bought a gun. You wouldn't feel the need I, to warn him. Right. I mean, if it was like right after, I might be like, hey, Brandon. <laughs> um, Lord, Lacey just bought a gun. <laughs> I know you guys just split up, but like, hold up. Um, actually, I probably wouldn't go to Brandon. I'd probably just be like, hey, Lacey, you okay? <laughs> why, why are you buying a gun, buddy? What you doing over there? Um, but yeah. Um, Russell told the police, and when Mr. and Mrs. Wasserman were contacted by Glencoe police, they said they would put the gun in a safe deposit box. So they'd lock it away. Okay. Because the police were also like, why does she have a gun? So everybody's concerned about Lori having this gun. 
Yeah. <laughs> but nobody's taking it away. <laughs> In August 1986, Lori reached out to her ex-boyfriend, the pre-med student, Dr. Boyfriend. Oh, Dr. Boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Although at this time, he was a resident at a hospital. She told him that she'd had his child. Dr. Boyfriend refused to believe this. So Uh Lori hung up and then called the hospital where he worked. She told the hospital people that he'd raped her in the emergency room. Oh, my God. That's a little bit of an escalation, it feels like, even for Lori. Yeah. Holy shit. Also, it's important to keep in mind that while she's doing this, she's also still making harassing phone calls to Russell and his family. Well, why would you stop? Yeah. Um, on September 30th, 1986, uh, Russell called 911 because he'd been stabbed in the chest with an ice pick while he was sleeping. Okay. Can you imagine waking up to an ice pick in your chest? No. Also, he was alive. I'm surprised. I mean, waking up to an ice pick in your chest is crazy because I'm. I feel like it should kill you. Mm-hmm. Nope. Um, but, however, he immediately accused Lori, and although the police declined to file any charges because they claimed there was a lack of proof, but a hardware store employee said he remembered Lori buying an ice pick, and they found a receipt for an ice pick in her home. Oh my god. There are so many cases that we talk about in here where the police are just not doing their jobs. Well, in the police's defense, they found Russell to be abrasive. And he did fail to chest with an ice pick. I'd be so (laughs) abrasive. He also failed a polygraph exam. And Russell's medical report suggested that the injury may have been self-inflicted. Oh, so they thought maybe he was just trying to get Lori in trouble. Yeah. Okay. Like, he knew that she bought an ice pick, so he stabbed himself with one. But then where did her ice pick go? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Lori, however, did pass a lie detector test. So the police were just like, this is messy, and didn't file any charges. That is correct. Russell and his family continued to receive phone calls. And in November 1986, she was arrested by Highland Park Police for making those harassing calls. The charges were later dropped by Lake County prosecutors who cited a lack of concrete evidence. And this is a mugshot photo of her. Okay. I would just like you to... It looks like a completely different person, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm uncomfortable. And I don't even know why. This yeah, she looks like, like a regular happy young lady in those pictures. And then I want to say she looks a little crazy, but I don't know if that's just because I'm I know more about her now and she's starting to feel crazy. But yeah. she looks a little more crazy. Yeah. Um by John- January 1987, the divorce proceedings were making progress. Court documents show the couple intended to split the money from selling the house. Valued at about $250,000. And Russell Dan would pay Lori $1,250, so $1,250 a month for 36 months as like an alimony. Alimony. Um, So 
250,000 dollars in 1987 is about half a million today that makes sense that was their five bedroom house in the nice neighborhood yes yeah and $1,250 in 1987 is about $3,500. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah. I would like $3,500 yeah. a month for nothing. Um, about the same time, the harassing phone calls seemed to diminish. So okay. things were getting better. Suspicious. On April 27th, 1987 their divorce was finalized so Lori kind of got her way it lasted about two years yeah yeah it wasn't a quick easy one no but that was not the end of russell's issues with Lori. in may 1987 Lori accused russell of raping her there were no physical signs but Lori did pass two polygraph exams I feel like at this point, maybe she just is good at lying. Yeah. Is she accusing well, him? Was she saying that, like, he did it before when they were married? Or is she saying, like, now? It, like, recently happened? Now. Okay. Hair samples were taken from Russell. And afterwards, prosecutors um, did not or decided against pursuing the case. Because... Well, that's good. There's no evidence. It was not true. Um, yeah, that too. That same month, so May 1987, mm -hmm. Lori accused Russell of planting a Molotov cocktail in her home. I wonder not if throwing it. Just putting just it. Just like in putting it. Yeah, putting it on um, the table. I wonder Russell, if she believed any of the stuff she was saying. It would definitely explain why she was able to pass so, pass so many polygraph exams. If you believe it, then you're not telling a lie. <laughs> like, your body's exactly. not going to act like you're lying. Hmm. Russell was questioned, but no charges were filed. Lori's parents believed her claims, supporting and defending her claims throughout. So if she said it, they were like, we believe you. Okay. I, I also want to remind you, she is that. living with them. What? I feel like they should know better than that by now, but... It's not my business, I guess. Um, I wanted to remind you that she is living with them at this point. Yeah. So by this time, Lori began being treated for OCD and a chemical imbalance. Although this, although her psychiatrist told police he didn't think Lori was suicidal or homicidal. Both are wrong. I oh no, <laughs> oh no. In the summer of 1987, Lori moved out of her parents' home and began subletting a university apartment at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. So when I say a university apartment, I mean like an apartment for college students. Okay. You didn't have to be a college student, but it was like... Mostly. It was going to be students. Right. Okay. Other residents of the building began to note strange behavior from Lori. She would ride up and down in the elevators for hours. She would wear rubber gloves frequently. And she'd leave meat to rot in sofa cushions. Ew. So, like, you know how in the dorms at college, there'd be, like, the common area with, like, a couch? Yeah. 
they would find rotting meat just in the cushions. That's weird and gross. Mm -hmm. She soon became a suspect in thefts at the building and for several disruptive incidents. Additionally, people thought it was weird that she lived at a university apartment but took no classes. Which I get that. Yeah. She was like in her mid to late 20s, I think, at this point. Where are we? Are we a little bit older than most of the. Well, you said she was born in 57. She's 30 now. If it's 87. Yeah, you're right. Oh, no, she's going to be 29 because it's summer. Oh, okay. Didn't have a birthday yet. She hasn't turned 30 yet. Um, Around this time, Lori was finding work as a babysitter. Some of her employers found her to be amazing, while others complained that she damaged their furniture, stole food, and their clothing. Hmm. Reports were made to the police, but no charges were filed. Lori's father, Norman, did compensate one family to the tune of $400 for damages. But all the families that hired her in 87 said she was good with children. So, like, the only complaints were that she was stealing from them and damaging (laughs) their crap. She's good with the kids. She's just a bad person. Right. The university, meanwhile, you know, the the university apartment that she Mm -hmm. lives at, uh, they moved to evict her. Oh. But her father arrived to conciliate, and she moved out September 7th, 1987. Hmm. So, meanwhile, Russell had hired a private investigator to keep an eye on Lori after he had grown afraid of her. I'm also afraid of her. I I mean, she did stab (laughs) him while he was sleeping, so. Yeah, with an ice pick. Yeah. So, he just has, like, he hired a PI to just kind of follow her around and make sure that she stayed away from him. Yeah. Which, if you can afford it. Go for it. (laughs) Um, The PI described her as largely nocturnal, and it wasn't unusual for her to sleep in her car. Okay. She's like a raccoon. I I feel like you're getting nervous about her. (laughs) I am. She's been escalating mostly slowly with a couple things thrown in, like the ice pick and accusing Dr. Boyfriend of raping her. But for the most part, I think it's been like, kind of steady escalation but it hasn't stopped so i'm i am worried and it doesn't seem like anybody's really doing anything yeah um in october 1987 after four complaints about theft of food and clothing glencoe's public safety director reached out or reached an agreement with norman wasserman He said his daughter would not seek any more babysitting jobs, but would continue with the family who liked her. He, at this time, he had already paid restitution to two families. So the families that she babysat for complained so much about the stealing and the, and the, uh, yeah, just the stealing, uh, that the, the public safety director reached out to her dad and was like, listen, we need to work something out because your daughter is kind of being a nuisance. And he was like, okay, she won't work for them anymore. And the the people that like her can keep her, but like, she won't do any more jobs. Okay. And I just feel like that's not helping. No. You're kind of just like putting a bandaid over. What'd you say? 
So I feel like nobody's helping her. No, nobody's helping her. And I feel like everybody's kind of just like minimizing red flags. Yeah. I'm concerned. November of 1987, Lori told police that Russell, you should be because I don't know if you've noticed, but we started going by like every month. There's a new update. Yeah. In November of 1987, Lori told police that Russell had been sending her threatening letters and sexually assaulted her in a parking lot. Again, police didn't believe her. So on November 7th, she bought a 32 caliber Smith and Wesson revolver. Okay. Smith and Wesson revolver. There you go. She bought another gun. She bought a gun. So she's got two at this point. Also, I'd like to point out that it's been nearly a year since the divorce was finalized and she's still like making shit up about her ex-husband. Yeah. Yeah. So a month later on December 29th, 1987, Lori purchased yet another gun. This time it was a 22 caliber Beretta Bobcat. Okay. So So she's got, she's got a couple now. Three. All right. In January 1988, Lori's parents finally decided to seek specialized help for her. Oh, okay. Lori moved to Madison, Wisconsin to live in an off-campus student housing called The Towers to be observed by a university psychiatrist who specializes in OCD. This new psychiatrist, Dr. John Greist, prescribed her lithium carbonate to reduce mood swings and an experimental drug called clomipramine. Okay. That was meant to control her OCD behaviors. However, her strange behaviors did not stop and her new concerns about bulimia and new concerns about bulimia arose. She also began working with a behavior therapist at this time. So I'm wondering if, like, they just misdiagnosed her. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I feel like you could argue that it wasn't OCD. It was paranoid behavior. Yeah. Yeah, especially if, because I haven't decided yet if I think she believes the accusations she's making. But if she does, that doesn't sound like an OCD thing. That sounds more like a schizophrenia or something. Yeah. Yeah. In March 1988, she stopped going to her appointments with Dr. Greist and her behavior therapist. Oh, good. At the Towers, where she was living off off of the campus, Lori told students that she was a sophomore studying journalism and said she had transferred from Northwestern. She quickly became known as a loner and an eccentric and was nicknamed the Psycho Elevator Lady. So she kept that going. Nice nickname. I like when the nicknames are just like who they are or what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Psycho elevator lady. Her sweet mate said she once found a note in Dan's room that appeared to be a schedule for riding the elevators. So she had like a plan. She had an elevator schedule. Yeah. I think she, you know what I think she would have done really well with? A hobby. Like she had one. <laughs> the elevators. Like if she learned to crochet, imagine how much stuff she would have made. You know, put herself While on a she crocheting was in schedule. Maybe in the elevator. <laughs> Just park in there with your needles and thread. 
On March 12th, Dan was reportedly seen in a lab at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics building. Three days later, a quantity of arsenic and lead were reported missing. Sorry, stolen. On March 14th, Lori Dan was arrested and charged with shoplifting. They found her in possession of four wigs and two hair clips at a JCPenney store in Madison. She said she was a University of Arizona student, gave her address as the Highland Park home she had once shared with her husband. Oh, interesting. So the house that they sold. Yeah. She said that was her her home. Hmm. Meanwhile, she was still making threatening calls to Russell's family and her ex-boyfriend in Tucson. Doctor boyfriend. Doctor boyfriend. Was still she's still harassing him too. I'm assuming that he didn't get in trouble for the allegations she made to the hospital. Like they, no, didn't they found out. that they okay. were unfounded. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. Also, like they had no like there. She had never gone to the hospital. Yeah, she just. Oh, Lori, Lori, Lori. <laughs> um, shortly before Mother's Day, Susan Taylor, who is Russell's sister. She answered the phone and heard a female voice say, quote, Susie, Mother's Day, are you all getting together? You shall die. This same month, she sent a letter to the hospital administration where Dr. Boyfriend worked, again, accusing him of sexual assault. Can you imagine this poor man? All he did was date her in college. (laughs) For two years. That was it, yeah. For a little little while, two years, but then it was years ago, and now she's harassing him, and he's probably like, what did I do? How do I stop this? Biggest mistake of his life. Yes. She probably gave him trust issues. On May 15th, with most students already gone for the summer, a staff member at the Towers found Lori in a fifth floor garbage room. She was lying in the corner of the room, curled up in a fetal position with a plastic bag pulled over her body, dripping with sweat. Uh, Was that supposed to be, was that like a suicide attempt? No, she was sleeping. Oh, just in a bag. No, not in a bag. Just, I think she was just using it as a blanket. Oh, oh, I thought, I thought she was in a bag. Oh, no, no, no. Like, was trying to suffocate herself kind of thing. It was just just pulled over her body. She was sweaty in a garbage room, sleeping in a fetal position with a bag over her. She's a mess. So it's May 1988. Lori Dan is 30 years old with an extensive history of mental illness. That's all child. (laughs) (laughs) And had been treated for severe OCD. And had displayed odd, dangerous, and violent behavior for weeks before this time. Oh, no. Okay. Yes. In the middle of May, Lori started preparing rice cereal snacks and juice boxes, poisoned with diluted arsenic that she had stolen in Madison. No. She mailed them to a former acquaintance, ex-babysitting clients, her psychiatrist, oh my God. Russell Dan, and a handful of other people. So she just made poison snacks and just started sending them out. Yes. Oh my god. Ow. Ex babysitting clients is the most the the biggest one for me. Yeah. 
Because early in the morning of May 20th, she personally delivered snacks and juice samples to acquaintances and families for whom she had babysat, some of whom, Hume, Hume, some of Hume, how am I saying it? Why can't I say it? Whom? Whom? Some of whom had not seen her for years. Other snacks were delivered to several fraternity houses and the dining hall at Northwestern University in Evanston. Notes were attached to some of the deliveries. Luckily, the drinks were often leaking and the square and the squares, like the treats, um, didn't taste good. So few actually consumed, consumed them. That's lucky. Those that did eat or drink the poisoned snacks were not seriously ill because the arsenic was highly diluted. Oh, so she didn't even do a good job of poisoning everybody. Exactly. Okay. After delivering delivering the snacks, Lori traveled to the family home of Padrack and Marion Rush in Winnetka. She had previously babysat for them, and earlier that week, they had told her that they were moving away, so her services were no longer required. She told the parents that there was... So this gets a little meh Okay, for me. She told the parents that there was a previously planned play date to a carnival in Evanston, Illinois. The parents let her take two of their children to the carnival... But there was no carnival. Instead, Lori transported the children to Ravinia Elementary School in Highland Park. She chose this school because she believed her former sister-in-law's two sons were students there. Oh, no. She left the two children in the, the, the two rush children in the car while she entered the school and started a small fire in one of the school's hallways. Oh, my God. She then left, and after her departure, the small fire she set was subsequently discovered by students and quickly extinguished by a teacher. Well, she's not good at anything. <laughs> like, I'm glad. I'm glad that didn't work. But she really cannot do anything right. So then she went to the day center at the Young Men's Jewish Council, also in Highland Park. She tried to enter, but was prevented in do- from doing so. Um, But she did leave a Mickey Mouse cup laced with poison. The children of Susan Taylor, Russell Dan's sister, were at both these schools. So these were their kids' schools. Okay. Which is the theory behind why she chose those two schools. I'm still a little hung up on her showing up at these people's house and being like, don't you remember? We had a play date plan. I was going to take the kids. And they're like, I don't remember. But yeah, take my kids. (laughs) I'm not going to follow up on this at all. Yeah, and then what she did was just drove around with them while she tried to burn down a school and poison another kid. I wonder why. Well, you you keep going. I'll I'll put okay. my wonder for later. I'll write it. Down. So then Lori drove the two rush children home at around ten fifteen. She dropped them off, and then she offered them some arsenic poisoned milk. The children did drink the milk, but spat it out because it tasted strange. Like Lori took the children to the basement of their home, and when their mother went to check on them, Lori set the basement stairwell on fire with gasoline and fled. The family the mom was, was able to... with the kids, and she set the gas the stairs yes. on fire. 
the family was able to escape through a basement window without any injuries. While the firefighters worked to extinguish the house fire, Lori drove the three and a half blocks to Hubbard Woods Elementary School in Whittaka. When he, did I say it right? Winnica? Sure. I've never been there. Oh, I messed it up. You've never been there? <laughs> Give me one second. I accidentally exited out of my PowerPoint. Sure. I'm not like on the edge of my seat. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so I'll throw this out there. My wondering while you're doing that, because mm -hmm. I thought maybe we were going to answer, but I don't think so. I wonder why she even went to that house and was like, Hey, I need, why she even wanted the kids with her? Cause she just like drove around. I don't know. Maybe she felt like she needed them as cover. So if somebody was like, why are you at the school? She's like, Oh, I got kids in my car. But she left them in the car. Yeah, she didn't even use them to get into the building. So she just drove around with them, went home, and then was like, while I'm here, I might as well try to kill this family. <clears throat> I don't know. I I describe her behavior on this day as chaotic. And it's it, it only gets worse. Oh, good. Because it was already pretty bad. <laughs> okay, so this is the Harvard Woods okay. Elementary it's, School. It's pretty. It looks like a firehouse. Oh. Lori entered the school because it was 1988 mm -hmm. with three handguns. Oh no, no, no. She quickly encountered a boy in the hallway and pushed him into a nearby bathroom. She shot the boy in the stomach with her 22 Beretta. Oh, then no. she attempted to shoot two other boys with the 357 Magnum, but the gun jammed. The boys were able to run for help while Lori threw the jammed gun in the trash. She left the bathroom and walked into a second grade classroom. No, no, no. Armed, armed at this time with two handguns, she claimed that she was there to teach the children about guns. Then she instructed the substitute teacher to gather her students at one end of the room. It, the teacher instead tried to disarm Lori because red flag. It, yeah. In the struggle, the teacher managed to unload the Beretta, but Lori pulled the 32 Smith & Weston from her waistband and opened fire, oh, striking five children. Oh, I've never heard of this. Yeah. Eight-year-old Nicholas Corwin later died of his injuries. Oh, that's where he is. Yeah. You said his name at the beginning. So, I forgot because I got focused on Lori. So, oh, I'm not going to go there yet. Okay, so... um. Nicholas Brent Corwin was born April 9th, 1980 in Chicago. His parents, Joel and Linda Corwin, as well as his friends and schoolmates, remember him for his kindness, his sportsmanship, and his leadership. So we're going to continue on with Lori's day because it is not over. Okay. Um, but we will talk more about Nikki later. He was Nick. They called him Nikki. Nikki. Hmm. Lori then fled the school in her car, but was unable to get far because her route was blocked due to a funeral. She detoured and found herself at a dead end, so she abandoned her car, removed her bloodstained shorts, and tied a blue garbage bag around her waist. Yeah, because that'll with, draw lots of attention. With her two remaining guns, she made her way through the woods and came upon the home of the Andrew family. Um, 
We're just going to stay there. Okay. Um, Lori burst through the door to find 20-year-old Philip Andrew, a collegiate swimmer, home for the summer, in the kitchen with his mother. Lori told them that she'd been raped and shot her assailant. She looked disheveled, sweaty, and upset. The Andrews were sympathetic but confused. Her story didn't really make sense to them, but they tried to convince her that she need not fear the police because she had acted in self-defense. Mrs. Andrew gave Lori a pair of her daughter's pants to wear. While she was putting them on, Philip was able to pick up and pocket the Beretta. So they got one gun away from her. Mm -hmm. He suggested that she call her family. Lori agreed and called her mother, Edith, telling her she had done something terrible and that the police were involved. Philip took the phone and explained Lori's story about the rape and the shooting, suggesting that Edith come to get Lori. Edith said she could not come because she did not have a car. Oh, okay. So not the best person to call to come get you. Right. At this time, Mr. Andrew, Philip's dad, arrived home, and they continued to argue with Lori, insisting that she give up the second gun. I think that they were kind of, um... Suspicious. Well, you know, she was kind of giving off weird vibes, and they were like, why don't, why don't you just put the gun down? Yeah. Can you, like, she wasn't wearing pants. <laughs> and they they described her as disheveled, upset, and sweaty. I don't know. She That's was concerning. probably very erratic, too. And they were probably just like, why don't we put the gun down? Um, Lori called her mother again, and this time Mr. Andrew spoke with Edith, asking her to persuade Lori to give up the gun. While Lori spoke with her mother, Mrs. Andrew left the house and alerted the police. Mr. Andrew told Lori that he would not remain in the house if she did not put the gun down. And so he also left the house, which this is a weird. So, okay. Lori ordered Philip to stay, keeping him as hostage. This is a very weird hostage situation. She was on the phone and yeah. one of them just left. <laughs> and then the dad was like, listen, if you're not going to put the gun down, I'm out. Yeah. And she was like, no. And so he's like, okay, bye. Also, they just left their 20-year-old son in there with her. You know, self-preservation. Right. They can have more kids. So, just before noon, seeing the police arrive at the, arrive at the house, Lori freaked out a little bit and shot Philip in the chest. Oh my god. Phil dove into a pantry, kicking the door shut behind him. And then he... So, like... It was very theatrical in my head when I pictured it. Yeah. He tried to dive out of the way of getting shot, mm -hmm. dove into the pantry, closed the door, and then he realized he'd been he'd gotten hit anyway. Mm. Lori fled upstairs while Phil staggered out the back door before collapsing. But paramedics quickly responded and transported him to the to Highland Park Hospital. Okay. The bullet punctured both of his lungs, Oof. his esophagus his stomach, and his pancreas. Lori, now alone in the, the Andrew home, maintained a standoff with police for hours. Police tried to convince her to give herself up by enlisting the help of her parents and Russell. Lori, feeling trapped by police, who had the home surrounded, shot herself in the mouth in the upstairs bedroom. 
course. At around 7 p.m., an assault team entered the house and found her body. At her, at her death, Lori Wasserman Dan weighed 137 pounds. She wore a University of Arizona Medical School t-shirt imprinted with a skeleton posed as the thinker. Because many of the victims were children, it was difficult finding information about them. Yeah. Because, but she had only shot and only shot and she only killed one. So everyone else that she shot kind of amazing for the rampage she was on. Yeah. And also all the fires she started and the poison. Yes. Yeah. Well, she really was awful at everything that she did. Wounded in the I've spring. I've never heard of this. I cannot believe. I've never heard of this lady who just walked into an elementary school and shot people. I did get a list of a couple victims. Um, Robert Trossman was six. Peter Ooh. Monroe was eight. Lindsay Fisher was eight. Catherine Miller was seven. And Mark Taborek was eight. These were the ones who, who were shot. Yes. Um, Jesus. I did get information about Peter Monroe because he like later talked about this. He was shot in the chest and spent most of his summer in and out of the hospital. Peter went on to become a husband, a father, and a licensed clinical social worker at Rush University Medical mm. Center. Good for him. Philip Andrew, remember him, the 20-year-old swimmer who yes. was held hostage and then shot in the chest? Yeah. He spent more than two weeks in the hospital following the shooting, but he made a full recovery. Good. At the end of July 1988, Phil Andrew filed a negligence lawsuit against Lori's parents, claiming that they allowed her to keep guns in their home when they knew she was mentally ill and possibly violent. Hmm. He asked for in excess of $15,000, which would be about $39,000 today. Following his recovery, Phil went on to spend 21 years with the FBI specializing in hostage and crisis negotiations. Cool. He got married, had four kids, and still swims. Good for him. That's fun. In September 1988, Nick Corwin's, Nikki Corwin's parents filed a wrongful death suit against Lori Dan's estate, her parents, and her psychiatrist. The oh. Corwin's included the psychiatrist in his practice because they, because they prescribed Lori an, an experimental drug, and experimental drugs could only lawfully be administered by physicians authorized to dispense said experimental drugs oh. to groups of experimental patients. The suit said the doctor was not authorized to prescribe the drug or procure it for a patient. The suit also said the drug was known to induce, induce violent behavior in mental patients. By this time, six of the victims had filed lawsuits against the Wassermans. A little over a year later, in November, the Corwin family settled with the Wassermans. Their attorney, Howard Schaefner, said they, quote, they decided not to put themselves through a trial. They didn't need the Wassermans' deposition to satisfy themselves that they acted un irresponsible, unreasonably. This was never a case about money. It was about the broader principle that people cannot walk away from their responsibilities. Three years after the rampage, the Wassermans settled the last of the lawsuits, and following Lori's rampage, they sold their Glencoe home and moved to Boca Raton, Florida. On September 22nd, 1988, Winnica 
Park District board members voted to rename Edgewood Park. Nick Corwin Park is located near the Corwin family home and where Nicholas used to play soccer. That's sweet. So I'm going to show you some pictures real quick. Okay. So these are some pictures from the newspaper. Um, Superintendent Donald Monroe reassures parents that their children are safe. Um, this is Principal Richard Streeten holding a list of victims with a bloodstained shirt. I don't like that. And teacher Amy Moses, she conf she was the one who confronted Lori. It's horrifying. And then these are pictures of the parents picking up their children from school. Cool. This is a picture of Philip Andrew. And this is Norman Wasserman being led away from the scene after the police found Lori's body. Because you know how they called him to see if he could help. Yeah. Um, police Chief Herbert Tim displayed some of the poison juice and snacks. And this is the authorities removing Lori Dan's body from the Andrew family home. This is Nikki. Nikki Horwin. Here's his gravestone. And this is a picture of his funeral. A brilliant light. Oh. Beloved son, brother, and friend. A brilliant light. Our everlasting love. Mm. And here's a picture of the sign. Nick Corwin Park. Well, thanks for the downer of an episode. Well, I'm not done yet. Oh, okay. This rampage by Lori Dan sparked questions about the ease of wit at which she was able to legally buy guns despite her mental state, as well as students' safety at schools. Because no other school shooting had received such wide coverage, Nicholas Corwin's murder is sometimes called the first school shooting. Okay. Some blamed Lori's family for defending and protecting her in spite of the signs of her deteriorating mental health. Investigations were hampered by the Wasserman's refusal to be interviewed by police or to provide access to Dan's psychiatric records, although they were eventually obtained by court order. On the night of Lori's death, the Wassermans allowed only a very brief search of her bedroom, after which they cleaned it and removed potential evidence. The police were criticized for not sealing off Lori's room as part of a crime scene. Further criticism was directed at Lori's psychi psychiatrists for failing to identify or take action regarding the signs of Lori's decreasing mental stability. At the time of her suicide, Lori was taking the unlicensed drug, which caused a lot of criticism as well. Two newspaper clippings were found among Lori's possessions after her death. One described a man who randomly killed two people in a public building. The other described a depressed young man who had attempted to commit suicide in the same way that Lori did. He survived and discovered that his brain injury had cured him, cured him of his OCD. Huh. So one theory of Lori's rationale was that she was that she targeted people who had disappointed her in some way, her ex-husband, her former sister-in-law through attempting to hurt her children, um, her ex-boyfriend and his wife, the family who was moving away, the rush family, yeah. as well as former friends and babysitting clients. Also, it's worth noting that Lori was also briefly investigated as a possible suspect in the Chicago Tylenol murders, but no direct connection was found. Hmm. Um, I thought 
this was kind of interesting because I don't know if you're aware of what's currently going on with the Crumblies. No. Um, Ethan Crumbly was the the guy who killed four students at an Oxford, Michigan high school in 21. Oh, okay. His parents oh, were yeah. arrested for manslaughter, citing gross negligence for failing to tell the high school that the family had guns. Mm. Deliberations began on Monday, February 5th, and lasted 11 hours. And on February 6th, 2024, in a first-of-its-kind trial... Jennifer Crumbly was found guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter. She will be sentenced on April 9th. She faces up to 15 years in prison. Jennifer Crumbly is the first parent in the United States to go on trial in a mass school shooting carried out by her child. And her husband, James Crumbly's trial begins on March 5th. That's good. I did see she was found guilty. That's good because that whole situation was insane. Yeah. Um... And then I mentioned it last week, but I became aware of this because you said you hadn't heard about this. I had. I became I, aware the of name it. didn't connect for me. Well, not the Crumblies. Oh, Lori Dan. Dan. Yeah, no, no yeah. idea. Um, I became aware of it because remember last week I told you Jake Johnson, Jake Johnson from New Girl, Nick Miller. Yeah, yeah, that was your like sneak peek. Yeah, he was nine years old at the time and was a student at Hubbard Woods Elementary School. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he he was supposed to be in school that day, but he was out of the building because his class went on a field trip. Wow. Yeah. Who's making faces at you? My mom's asked me if her shirt's too tight, and she's bending and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's a new shirt. It is. It has a tag on it. So she was like... And then started bending. Does she know that you're busy? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's why she whispered it instead of saying it. She went. And then just moved. That's that's crazy. Yeah. I'm glad you said it. um, Because I kind of felt like an asshole saying it. But like. She was so bad. At everything she tried. Yeah, I don't... Are there any other people who have tried so hard to kill multiple people and couldn't? I'm I'm glad. I'm so glad that she sent yes. out all that poison to people and it didn't work. But she sent out all that poison to people and it didn't work. And she also, like, set two fires. Two fires that nothing happened. She was in a room full of second graders. Thank God she didn't kill all of them. And yeah. then she had that family, like, held hostage... Well, no, you're also forgetting that she shot a kid, like, point blank in the bathroom. Oh, yeah, yeah, the fir- Before she even got in the classroom, there was a kid in the bathroom. And then the other kids that, like, got away. I- or the gun jammed and they were able to get away. Yeah. I hate to say it, but I feel like she didn't pay attention. Well, you know how she wasn't a good student? Maybe she mm-hmm. just didn't do well in the marksmanship class. No, I forgot she took that class. Oh, my God. She's yeah. awful at everything. <laughs> Mental health is not a joke, but no, but Lori is. Lori Dan is. That's crazy. Well, that was sinister. (laughs) And we were sarcastic. And we hope you keep listening.